Welcome to Evidence-Based, a new Harbinger psychology podcast. I'm your host, Cassie Stossel. On today's episode, we're talking about pain science. We're joined by Dr. Rachel Zofnis, author of the Pain Management Workbook. She's a leading global pain expert, international speaker, author, and thought leader in medicine revolutionizing the way we understand and treat pain. She's also a pain psychologist, assistant clinical professor at UCSF, and lectures at Stanford. Dr. Zofnis is also the author of the Chronic Pain and Illness Workbook for Teens and consults on the development of integrative pain programs around the world. She's a regular guest on popular podcasts like Ologies, Jordan Harbinger, and Z-Dog MD, and her episodes have over 5 million downloads. Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for joining us today on Evidence-Based. Thanks for having me, Cassie. I love New Harbinger. I think you guys are great. Thank you. I do as well. So I want to get our conversation started off with asking, what is chronic pain and why is it so commonly misunderstood? So here's the funny thing. Um, I was trained as a clinical psychologist and I studied health psychology and I studied pain neuroscience as an undergrad. I was a brain and behavior nerd at Brown. But it turns out that one of the biggest lies we've all been sold as therapists and as psychologists is that we don't treat pain. And it drives me crazy. We have this divide in Western medicine. You know, either you have physical pain and you see a physician or you have emotional pain and you see a therapist or a psychologist like me. But it turns out to your question that that's not true ever. That's never true. And every therapist knows, of course, we all treat pain. If you treat trauma, you know, and you've seen that your patients have a number of physical symptoms and trauma and chronic pain are comorbid. They live together up to 80% of the time. And of course, any therapist will tell you if you treat depression or anxiety, you also will see a lot of chronic pain, including migraine and amplified body pain and chronic low back pain. So what I'm going to humbly submit to everybody listening is we always, all of us, as therapists are treating pain. It's just that no one ever told us how to do that. So hopefully on this episode, we can sort of shift that needle, move that needle a little bit and reorient everybody to what pain is. So what is chronic pain, you asked? So by definition, chronic pain is pain that lasts three months or longer. That's it. That's the definition. And there's lots of different definitions of chronic pain, to be honest. Another one is pain that lasts beyond expected healing time. So hopefully you can tell that our definitions for pain are sort of lacking, but chronic pain in general, pain that lasts three months or longer, and it can be anywhere in the body. It can be back pain that's lasted for three months or more, chronic migraine you've had since you were a college student. It can be chronic low back pain. It can be chronic abdominal pain. So Pain can live anywhere in the body, and chronic pain just refers to pain in any body part. Rachel, aside from those physical aspects of pain, what are the other factors that can influence pain? The other funny and interesting thing about pain that we've never been told as therapists is that pain is never, and I mean never, a purely biological or biomedical process ever. What science says is that pain, all pain, 100% of the time, whether it's acute pain or chronic pain or whether it's migraine pain or abdominal pain or back pain or knee pain or tooth pain, is this word biopsychosocial. And what does that word mean? 
I'm just going to break it down because this is going to be very intuitive for all of us once we hear it as it was intuitive for me as someone who lives with pain and as someone who treats pain. Of course, pain has biological components, right? There's tissue damage and system dysfunction and inflammation. And of course, there's biological components of pain like diet and sleep and exercise. And we know that those are very, very important when it comes to pain. However, there are also many other components that contribute both to pain production and pain reduction that are not biomedical. And the reason I'm saying this so emphatically is because, as we all know, in America, when you have pain, the first thing you do is you trot off to a physician and you typically get prescribed a medication or you are recommended a procedure, a surgery, an intervention of some sort. But it turns out that that is not a sufficient treatment for chronic pain. Again, because pain is never purely biological. It's never just biomedical. It's always biopsychosocial. So if you imagine a Venn diagram with three overlapping domains or circles, we have, of course, the biodomain of pain, which we've talked about. Then we have the psychological domain of pain, and we have the social or the sociological domain of pain. Now, I don't need to tell anyone that in the psychological domain of pain, there is a ton of stigma, so much stigma. Because if you say to someone, anyone living with pain, hey, I want you to see Rachel Zoffness. She's a pain psychologist. That person will say, why would you send me to a psychologist for pain? Are you saying it's all in my head? Are you saying it's just emotional? My pain is real. My pain is organic. I have a real diagnosis. And the answer to that is, of course, of course, again, Yes, pain has biological components, but the psychological components of pain have been known to neuroscience for many decades, and they include thoughts, because by the way, the things you think affect your body 100% of the time. We know, of course, that anxious thoughts have a physiological component. Your heart will start racing, your muscles will clench, and your pain volume will amplify. Thoughts affect pain. Also in the psych bubble, we have emotions because as we all know, emotions don't just live in your head. They also come out in your body. There's a word for that, the somatic aspect of emotions. So when you are sad, as an example, salt water leaks out of your face. That is a physiological, physical sign of an emotion happening in your body. And of course, when you're stressed or when you're anxious, your mouth goes dry, you get butterflies in your stomach, your palms get sweaty. Emotions are physiological and they affect the body. And science says that emotions affect pain 100% of the time. So in the psych bubble, in the psych domain of pain, we have thoughts, we have emotions, we also have behaviors. And anyone who knows CBT or is into CBT or behaviorism or ACT, will tell you that, of course, behaviors affect emotions, and of course, behaviors affect thoughts, and of course, behaviors affect your body. And I'm going to say what I mean. When we have pain, what we typically do, especially with chronic pain, is we go into avoidance mode. We avoid leaving our house. We stay inside. We stay in bed. We quit our hobbies and our beloved activities. We stop exercising. We stop playing sports. And sometimes we have to stop going to work and we have to stop having sex. And 
pain just sort of takes all this real estate away from us. It really takes over and dominates our lives. And it turns out, science says, those behaviors will amplify pain. The very avoidant behaviors or the very behaviors that you end up selecting because you have chronic pain are the behaviors that turns out amplify pain volume. So we want to target behaviors when we treat chronic pain too. And then, of course, in the psych bubble, there's other things too, like trauma. I mentioned that trauma co-occurs with chronic pain up to 80% of the time. That's in the literature. It's known to be true. Our veterans are suffering with a disproportionate amount of chronic pain, as are women who have sexual assault and sexual traumas. It's the, the relationship is profound, and it's because trauma tra- changes the brain to amplify pain. So what I like to say to people is that if we're not treating trauma not treating pain. And that's just the psych domain of pain. So what I'm hoping to show is that pain, this word that we talk about all the time, is so much richer and so much more complex than we give it credit credit for. And it's definitely way more complex than the way we treat it in biomedicine, which is just, you know, you go to the hospital and you take a pill. And the final domain of pain, if everyone is still with me, and I hope you are, because it's very interesting, and pain science will change your life. In the social or the sociological domain of pain, I like to call that the everything else bubble because really everything else lives in there. There's so much in there. There's, you know, access to care and socioeconomic status and race and ethnicity. And there's also your social environment. So your family, there's a profound impact of family on pain. If you're a child with pain, there's a profound impact of parents on pain. So there are these great studies that all psychologists and therapists will be interested in that show if, if there's a child running on the playground and they suddenly fall, the first thing a child does is to look at their parent's face. And if the parent registers panic, the child will cry and express a lot of pain. If the parent says to the child, is reassuring and calm and calmly says, you're okay, and kisses the boo-boo, let's go back to playing, and distracts the child and engages the child in play. The child will not cry and will not express pain behaviors. So family, social environment, also in the sociological bubble, we have context and we have environment because it turns out that our environment affects the pain we feel 100% of the time also. There's a reason that children's hospitals are festooned with murals and stuffies. And there's a reason why touching someone, holding them, soothing them, rubbing their back, and feeding them chicken soup actually makes them feel better because touch medicine is real. Social medicine is real. So all of these factors together produce, produce and reduce the pain we feel always. This is so fascinating. I'm so intrigued by all of your work and all of this, this research. And I want to ask about something you just mentioned. You talked about context for a second. Can you say more about why context is important for how pain works? Yeah. So when we think about context, so I want to back up and go a little bit big picture. People are very confused about where pain is made. So it's easy to believe that pain lives in your bad back or in your aching knee, right? Of course. And so there's, we go to the doctor for our bad back and for our aching knee and they poke around in our knee and maybe they do like 12 knee surgeries or back surgeries or whatever. But, but that isn't where pain lives. Pain is actually constructed by your brain. 
Pain is constructed by your brain. A hundred percent of pain all the time filters through your brain's limbic system, which is your emotion center, before it becomes the experience of pain that we feel. So your brain all the time is using all available information to determine whether or not to make pain and how much. So your brain is incorporating information about your emotional state. Are you in a state of panic and emergency? If so, your brain is going to amplify the pain alarm. Are you in an environment that seems urgent? Is something on fire? Are things around you burning? Are people screaming? If so, your brain is going to amplify the pain alarm. And of course, that makes sense, right? Of course, that makes sense because your brain is trying to save your life. And that, by the way, is pain's job. Pain is your brain's danger detection system. It's your body's warning system, your alarm system. It exists to keep you alive. I remember when I first took my first neuroscience class when I was an undergraduate at Brown, a big nerd, and my professor, my neuroscience professor, was explaining that some people are born without the ability to feel pain. And I remember thinking, God, that sounds delightful. And then he explained that those people do not live very long. And that, of course, makes sense because, again, pain exists to save your life. It's your danger detector. So it takes all information into account, information about how you're feeling physically, how you're feeling emotionally, what's going on around you, and what's going on inside of you. So if you're in an environment of danger or high stress and anxiety or alarm, your brain will amplify the danger detection system. And if you're in an environment that's calm and soothing and relaxing, your brain will lower the pain alarm. So there's there's an example that I like to use, which is if you stub your toe on the day you get fired from work at a job you hate, it's going to feel completely different than that exact same injury sustained on a beach when you're hanging out with friends, drinking a beer in the sun. Your injury will feel different in different contexts. And of course, we know that that's true. If you line up 15 different people with the exact same injury and you ask them how they're feeling or their pain number, each person will give you a different number. And it's not that anyone's lying or exaggerating. Pain is different in every human body in every unique environment. So it's always what's happening inside the person and outside of the person that determines the pain you feel. That makes a lot of sense. And I want to go back about the 100% of the time pain is starts in the brain. So the pain starts in the brain, then you feel the pain. And then it almost is like a vicious cycle back to the brain of thinking about that pain, right? So let me say that a bit differently. So all pain is constructed by the brain, but it's always with input from the body. So mechanistically, pain is actually quite complicated. There's a lot of receptors and neurochemicals and muscles and channels involved. So I, I don't I don't want to say or oversimplify and say all pain is in the brain all the time because that would be an oversimplification. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So there's this complex mechanism where, you know, there's nociceptors in your body that pick up these danger messages in your skin and they communicate through your spinal cord up to your brain. And there's lots of ways that pain messages can be interrupted. And medications, by the way, interrupt the pain messages at your spinal cord and at your brain. So there's a lot of ways we can change the pain cycle. But yes, to answer your question, what I was saying earlier is that 100% of pain messages from the body filter through your brain's 
limbic system or your emotion center before they become the pain you feel. So emotions are always implicated in, in gating or changing the pain response. I, mm-hmm. Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I just thought it was an interesting, you know, emotional pain can cause more physical pain. And it's it just like a vicious cycle if you don't treat all of these things. Yeah. That's exactly right. So what we know, neuroscience says that negative emotions like depression, anxiety, and stress are pain amplifiers. And we also know simultaneously that the opposite is also true. So we know that things like MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, have a ton of literature and research and evidence showing that they can lower pain volume. And there's this whole field of CBT called CBTCP which is different than your average standard cognitive behavioral therapy. The CP stands for chronic pain. So it's CBTCP. And that has a ton of evidence also for changing pain volume and improving functioning. So if we hijack the brain's emotion center, if we change the emotions we feel, if we reduce depression, if we reduce stress, if we reduce anxiety, we absolutely can change pain volume. But to your point, we cannot change pain if we're only going after biological, biomedical things. We have to look at the whole picture. We have to also address emotions. If we're not treating anxiety, if we're not treating depression, if we're not managing stress well, and if we're not treating trauma, ultimately, we're not treating pain because all of those factors are just going to feed back into this loop and amplify pain. Absolutely. And just a side question, I'm curious, what changes have you seen in your work as a cause of the pandemic? Oh my gosh. During the pandemic, there was a massive spike in chronic pain. Pain clinics could not keep up with the demand. And there was also simultaneously, and not surprising to anyone, a massive increase in opioid overdoses. Um, I think, I can't remember the actual numbers. I think it was 70% increase. And some states saw even more than that in opioid use. And a lot of it is related to pain. A lot of it is not related to pain. But there was a massive spike during the pandemic for a number of reasons. We're talking about pain as a biopsychosocial problem. So what that means is, yes, there's biological drivers, but there's also psychosocial drivers. And a big driver of this pain explosion was social isolation because it turns out, again, social medicine is real. And when there's a reason why being among other people makes you feel better. And there's a reason why the number one punishment you can give a human being isn't Thanksgiving traffic and it isn't your in-laws. It's actually solitary confinement. Solitary confinement is the worst punishment you can give a human being. What does that say about us? In the presence of other people, our brains produce all of these neurochemicals that make us feel good, like dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin and also endorphins. Endorphins are our brain's endogenous, homemade, natural painkillers, our natural opioids. And when you isolate us, when you put us in solitary confinement or you isolate us, what happens is those chemicals crash. Dopamine crashes, serotonin crashes, endorphins crash, oxytocin goes down. So we feel worse and pain feels worse when we're isolated. So that was a part of the pain recipe. And of course, anxiety, stress, depression, suicidality spiked during the pandemic. There was an 8,000% increase 
in calls to suicide hotlines during the pandemic. Like we were not doing okay. We were not doing okay emotionally and we were not doing okay physically. People were also cut off from their routines. They were cut off from their normal coping strategies. They weren't able to go to the gym or see their PT or even get procedures they needed. So there were a million biopsychosocial reasons why the pandemic was absolutely miserable for people living with pain. Absolutely. Almost like a second uh, parallel pandemic happening. Exactly. A pain pandemic. I want to talk about the analogy used in your book, The Pain Dial. Can you talk about what this is and how that works? Yeah. So I just want to say I wrote the pain management workbook. It came out in 2020. Um, It's really funny. I wasn't sure anybody would read it because it came out during the pandemic when, of course, our attention was elsewhere. It came out December 2020. So it was like, you know, relatively early in the pandemic too. But it's done amazingly well. It's sold like 25,000 copies and I get this amazing feedback from providers who are, you know, therapists and PTs and physicians and from also from patients. So I hope it's useful to my therapist colleagues because one of the reasons I wrote it was to give therapists a guideline for treating pain because most of my colleagues say to me when I try and refer to them, please do not refer any more of your chronic pain patients to me. I don't treat pain. And I just sort of want to change the narrative here because as therapists, 100% of us treat pain. There's no such thing as trauma and anxiety and depression and stress and all of these other mental health diagnoses that do not come with physical symptoms. We all treat pain and we all need to know what to do and how everything is connected when we have patients with a variety of physical symptoms. It is a lie. It is a complete lie that physicians treat physical pain and therapists treat emotional pain. We all treat both always. I actually want to say a little bit more about that, that I think is interesting too, that the therapists do need to realize that they are treating pain and that physical pain does come in that. And I've been so interested in the way that grief and trauma affect the body. And I find that, you know, in previous therapy situations, there's not much help for the physical aspects of my grief, for example. And I find that it's cyclical. Like, you know, my mom died in 2018. And around the time of her death every year, I feel physically terrible. Of course, you do. You know, I logically know where that comes from. I've talked a lot. I've done grief therapy. But the physical aspects still haven't gone away, you know, almost five years later. And it's always cyclical. And so what you were just saying is really interesting to me personally, because I feel like I really relate to that. Total. I'm so glad you said that. Grief is a huge part of this too. And, and of course, grief affects the body. It's this funny, strange thing where we're disconnecting things that are so obviously connected. Like, tell me at what point during your day, your brain is not connected to your body. Like when we experience grief, it's physiological by definition. Of course it is. So there's a number of different treatments that actually do integrate things like grief and trauma into healing, what we think of as therapy or psychological healing. And I think we're all on the same page now that there's no such thing. It's not like psychological healing versus physical healing. You have to do all of them. Somatic experiencing therapy, I happen to like. It's And I just want to say the caveat, like some people like this stuff and some people don't. And I recommend that everybody try out a couple of these things and see what resonates for them. And in somatic experiencing therapy, you sort of talk about the, the incident 
that brought about the grief or the traumatic event in small doses and you experience it in your body with someone who guides you and then helps you change the somatic expression of that emotion. I've tried it. I've tried all the things that I recommend because I don't like recommending things to people that I don't understand. Um, and of course, there's a physiological component. And and the science to that is, first of all, we need support when we're going through hard things. Humans are social animals. And in somatic experiencing therapy, you process the trauma and you process the grief with a guide who is experienced in somatic health. So you get to integrate emotions and physical sensations. So I happen to like that. Um, another treatment that I really love that integrates physical and emotional is biofeedback. And I'm going to say what biofeedback is because many therapists have heard of it, but most of us don't know what it actually is or what it does. Biofeedback is an evidence-based treatment for a number of things. And I am going to humbly recommend it as a treatment for stress and anxiety and depression, migraine, uh, IBS, stomach pain, lower back pain, grief, trauma. I mean, it has a lot of evidence for a lot of different things. So when I first started doing chronic pain work, I had someone say to me, you should send your patients to biofeedback. And I said, I don't send my patients to anything I don't understand. So I went to see a provider based in Berkeley. His name is Dr. Pepper, which by the way, is a great name for any doctor. I love that. <laughs> yeah, totally. And Dr. Pepper said, sit down in this chair. I am going to teach you how to warm your hands to 90 degrees. Now, I am a chronically cold-handed person. I have since learned that having cold hands and cold feet is a sign of being in a state of stress. Surprising to no one. You've heard of having cold feet. Usually that applies to people who are getting married and are suddenly anxious about it. And there's a reason why having cold hands and cold feet is a sign of stress and anxiety. I'm going to tell you what it is. When we are in a state of stress, our bodies kick into fight or flight. Our adrenaline, our sympathetic nervous system turns on and our blood rushes away from our extremities and to our core because your body thinks there's an emergency and you can live without your hands and you can live without your feet, but you cannot live without great functioning of your heart and your lungs and you're preparing to fight or flight. So that's why we get cold hands and cold feet. So he said, I'm going to teach you to warm your hands. And I said, listen, doc, I'm sure you're a pro, but I don't believe in voodoo. And he said, cool. So I'm going to hook you up to this machine and I'm going to teach you how to do it. So he hooked in biofeedback. You are hooked up to a machine that reads a number of things that are happening to your body biologically. It reads your heart rate, your galvanic skin response, your skin temperature, your muscle tension, and your finger temperature, and a couple of other things also. And you're looking at the machine so you can see actual feedback about these biological processes, hence the name biofeedback. So he had me think a couple of stressful and a couple of stressful anxiety provoking thoughts. So in my case, I thought about my week and the 462 things I had to do and the patients who weren't yet better and all the things I was stressed out about. And surprising to no one, the machine, which was reading, biological processes happening in my body in real time showed me that my heart rate was going up, my muscle tension was increasing, and my skin temperature was plummeting. Skin temperature goes down when we're in a state of stress, again, in your extremities in particular. So then he had me close my eyes and he used all of these wonderful techniques with me that are going to be familiar to all the therapists listening. He had me use guided imagery. 
And in this guided imagery, and I know this sounds wonky to people who aren't familiar with it, he had me imagine that there were tubes in my arms and that hot air was flowing down my arms into my fingertips and that hot soup was flowing down my arms into my fingertips. And if you suspend your disbelief, it's amazing how well this works. And I imagined my hands over a hot campfire and he had me use all these relaxation techniques. So I was doing belly breathing and progressive muscle relaxation and changing, of course, my blood flow and my circulation. And also he was using autogenic training. Autogenic training is when you say things to yourself, you make suggestions to your brain. So I was saying to myself, my hands are heavy and warm. My arms and hands are heavy and warm. And then he had me open my eyes and lo and behold, I looked at the machine and my finger temperature was approaching 90 degrees. So biofeedback helps us change physiology by helping us change cognitive processes and emotions. When I went from a state of stress and anxiety to a straight state of relaxation, my physiology changed. When I changed my thoughts from stressed out, anxious thoughts to calm thoughts, my physiology changed because it turns out, surprising to no one, our cognitions, our emotions are connected to our physiology. So of course, when you're in a state of grief, your body is going to respond. That's totally not weird. So there's all these therapies. I also mentioned CBTCP, which is CBT for chronic pain. That's what I do. I mean, what I do in my office is I integrate everything. Like I'm all about whatever works. So I want to have a great tool belt so that no matter who walks into my office, no matter what their issue, whether it's grief or cancer, I feel like I know exactly what to do. I think that's really important. And before I want to ask more about your practice, but before we get into that, I want to go back and ask about the analogy of the pain dial. Oh God, that's what you asked. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. So like you can tell I'm really passionate about pain science because I was a kid with chronic pain. And as an adult, I've had episodes of chronic pain and I just feel like it couldn't be more important to disseminate this information about how pain really works because who among us is not going to have pain. Like we think as healthcare providers, like, oh, there's patients to the left and providers to the right. That is BS. Like every single person listening at some point has had pain and will have pain again. Pain is coming for everyone. So the way I like to explain pain and the way I offer this to providers as a method of explaining pain to patients is this metaphor of the pain dial. So if you imagine, I'm just going to offer it to you the way I explain it to my patients. So I want you to imagine that in your central nervous system, your brain and your spinal cord, you have what I'm going to call a pain dial. And it operates much like the volume knob on your car stereo. And you can turn pain volume up and you can turn pain volume down. And you've heard me talking about pain volume as I've been talking today. And there's a lot of things that change pain volume. Um, but the important thing to know is that pain volume, A, is always under executive control. It's under your control, believe it or not, to varying degrees and varying people at varying times. And B, pain volume is always changed by a number of biopsychosocial factors. So there's three things in particular that I like to talk about that adjust pain volume. One is stress and anxiety. Two is mood and negative emotions. And I know those overlap with one, just bear with me. I'm going to, there's a method to the madness. And three 
is attention or what you're focusing on. So here's how this works specifically. When stress and anxiety is high and your body and your muscles are tense and tight and your thoughts are worried, your brain sends a message to the pain dial amplifying pain volume. So whatever pain you had before, when you're stressed or anxious, pain is going to feel worse. Thing two I said is mood and negative emotions. So science says that when we're feeling sad and miserable or angry and frustrated, our limbic system, again, our brain's emotion center, will amplify pain volume. So pain feels worse when mood is low, when we're depressed or miserable or angry. Thing three is attention. So when we're focusing on pain, when we're home in bed, we're missing work, we're missing life and hobbies, your prefrontal cortex at the front of your brain responsible for executive functioning will send a message to your pain dial amplifying pain volume. So pain feels worse when we think about it, when we focus on it, and believe it or not, when we talk about it. And I think most of us have experienced that phenomenon. It is most certainly true for me. I have a pain condition in my leg when I talk about it that's when I feel pain. When I'm distracted, I never feel it. I forget about it. So the good news about the pain dial and the reason I love this metaphor so much is because the opposite is also true. The opposite is also true. When stress and anxiety are low, when our body and our muscles are relaxed and our thoughts are calm, Our brain sends a message to the pain dial, lowering pain volume. So pain feels less bad when we use strategies like diaphragmatic breathing and mindfulness-based stress reduction and we do the body scan. And when we're paying attention to our stress and we carve out time to engage in beloved hobbies like art and writing and walking and drawing, pain volume is lower. Thing number two we said is mood. So When we are feeling happy and joyful and grateful and we're engaged in pleasurable activities, science shows our limbic system will lower pain volume. So pain feels less bad when our mood is high, when we're happy, when we're managing our mood, managing our emotions. And thing three is attention. Shocking to no one. When you are distracted, When you are so absorbed in some activity, you briefly forget about your pain. That is not magic. That is your brain's pain dial. And we all know that that's true. So during the pandemic, when we were trying to get children vaccinated, we know that if you give your kid a screen and sufficiently distract them, they will not scream when you give them a shot. So distraction strategies work for pain for this reason. Pain volume is adjusted by your prefrontal cortex When you're distracted, distraction strategies will adjust pain volume down and lower pain volume. So I think the thing I just want to make sure to say as as we wrap up this metaphor is that all of it's always connected. Thoughts and emotions and behaviors and physical sensations exist in this cycle that's constantly cycling. So if we really want to target pain, we have to target all the pieces of the pain recipe, not just one. Earning your continuing education hours doesn't have to be a painful experience. The right course can open your mind to new possibilities, increase your confidence, and hand you powerful tools to transform your clients' lives. 
Praxis Continuing Education and Training teams up with some of the brightest minds in mental health to provide cutting-edge, evidence-based training for practitioners. You can learn firsthand from experts like Stephen C. Hayes, Kelly Wilson, Robin Walzer, Kirk Strausel, and many others. Find your next training at PraxisCET.com. That's PraxisCET.com. And you mentioned a couple strategies for helping, you know, the biofeedback, the somatic experiencing. Can you talk about what ways CBT can be effective for those suffering with chronic pain? So much confusion and miseducation about what CBT is and what it does for pain. So people think CBT is just a psychological treatment. And it drives me crazy. The number one question I get from people is, oh, you're a pain psychologist. Do you treat physical pain or emotional pain? And because I understand how pain works, now I just nod my head and I say yes, because of course it's always both. So CBT for chronic pain or CBTCP, there's a number of workbooks out there for any therapist who's interested in delivering it. I humbly submit the best one is mine, the pain management workbook. The reason I wrote it was because the pain science and the other workbooks I found were dated and they didn't have updated pain science. And it's important always to explain to patients how pain works if you want them to get on board with something that they see as a psychological treatment. There's a lot of stigma around that. So what CBT does for chronic pain is It targets the four pieces of this cycle that I'm going to outline here. And anyone familiar with CBT will be familiar with the basic gist of this cycle. So CBT tells us that the things we think affect the emotions we feel, affect the sensations in our body, affect our behaviors always Thoughts affect emotions, affect sensations, affect behaviors, and each affect the other. All the arrows are bi-directional. The cycle can go in any direction. Everything is affecting everything all the time. So I want to give you an example of a common pain cycle that I see with my patients and even with myself. And if we start with thoughts, we can start anywhere. But if we start with thoughts, the cognitive distortion or the distorted BS thought that our pain voice likes to give us sounds something like this. I'm broken. I'll never get better. Now, if you think that thought, how do you think you might feel? It's pretty clear that negative catastrophic thoughts like this one will trigger feelings of hopelessness, sadness, frustration, stress, anxiety, even hopelessness. And that in turn affects your body. And that goes back to that thing where emotions don't just live in your head. Emotions are physiological always, always. Butterflies in your stomach, sweaty palms, dry mouth, tears coming out of your eyes. Emotions always have a physical component. So when you're having this, you're having these negative cognitions, you're experiencing negative emotions, there's then a physiological response, increased muscle tension, and as we now know, amplified pain volume are expected and normal when we're thinking negative thoughts and feeling negative emotions. So now your body's freaking out, muscle tension is high, your sympathetic nervous system is turned on, you're having a stress response, your pain volume is amplified, you're feeling worse. 
So, so how do you act or behave in response to these negative thoughts and feelings? We naturally and normally go into the avoidance mode that I was talking about earlier, where we, you know, to, to some degree, we drop out of life and we stop doing things. We start isolating. We start avoiding. We don't go to work as much. We don't exercise as much. We dial back on pleasurable activities. We don't walk or go outside as much. So, you know, now we're inside and we're on the couch and we've spent some of us maybe months or maybe years inside and on the couch. And so the cycle keeps spinning around. Now, what are you thinking now that you're stuck inside, stuck in bed and your pain is worse and it's taken over? The thought that I hear commonly is pain has taken over my life. I have nothing left. And how does that thought make you feel? You know, I mean, it makes people feel incredibly hopeless. In fact, suicidality is 50% higher in the chronic pain population. 50% higher. Thoughts and emotions are always related to pain. So in CBTCP, we break the cycle. And what I love about this orientation to pain is that if you look at the cycle and you map it out on a piece of paper, and of course it's different for every patient who comes into my office, you can see 452 ways to break that cycle. You can change cognitions. You can change emotions. You can change coping strategies and coping behaviors. You can even change physical sensations. So there's always, always ways to change pain. So that's the CBT orientation to pain when it's done right. And I also want to say that people often skip the role that pain education plays in treating people with pain. And what I mean by pain education is exactly what we're doing here today, explaining how pain works explaining the role of thoughts and emotions and behaviors in pain. And it turns out there's a researcher named Adrian Lowe and another researcher named Lorimer Mosley, and I worship them. And they have shown that when you teach people how pain works, pain volume actually goes down and functioning goes up. Why? Because when we understand pain, we become less afraid of it. We're able to do more, and the more we do, the lower pain volume goes. We're also less scared, so lower stress and anxiety will lower pain volume. And it turns out that understanding pain absolutely can change pain. So in the pain management workbook, there's a whole section on pain education for providers to give to patients and for patients to absorb and learn, because there's always a million things we can do to change pain. That makes so much sense, and everything you've said, it makes such such sense. And it seems like it should be common sense, but none of us have been educated in this way. So I think the more people that learn about that, people are just going to feel so much better. Yeah. I think about that too. Like when I learned about pain science, it blew my mind, not because it was complex, but because it was so simple and intuitive. And again, I don't mean to say that pain is simple. Pain is obviously this very complex thing, but pain science is life-changing because it's so intuitive. Like anytime I explain this to anyone, whether I'm giving grand rounds at a hospital or explaining it to the 16-year-old sitting on my couch, it it of course makes so much sense. We all have carried this knowledge for forever, for our whole lives. And I think what's more confusing is when you're sent to the hospital and you've had five surgeries and you're still not well and you're like, why am I not better? Or, you know, your doctor prescribes opioids. And then on top of everything else, you're now dependent on this thing, which is actually terrible for you to change your pain. So it's like, what's confusing is what we're doing wrong. The, the answer that's right is actually crystal clear. And it's, it's actually been in front of us all along. And the real challenge is doing it well and training enough providers to do it well. 
Absolutely. And as we start to talk a little bit more about the the experience of the person with chronic pain, you talk about pain triggers in your book. Can you say a little bit more about that and what some examples might be? Totally. So there are always triggers for pain. And, you know, if you sit someone down and ask them what their triggers are, they often know. So for me, it's being sedentary and not taking enough breaks to stand and stretch during the day. And it's eating a crap diet and not, you know, not fortifying myself with important nutritious diet and it's having poor sleep and it's not moving or exercising and going outside and you know it's being isolated and not connecting with my community or it's overusing my body like I'll push it some days and do too much so pain triggers are like everything else to do with pain are biopsychosocial so biological pain triggers like I mentioned are you know lack of movement lack of activity not standing up, not poor sleep, poor diet. Pain triggers that are psychological are, you know, things like depression and anxiety and not managing stress and having a really bad day at work or having things pile up and not protecting time to relax, you know, or having a history of trauma that's not treated or, you know, going to a place where there was a trauma and that can be a trigger. And then in the social or the sociological domain of pain, there's a million things also. So toxic relationships are a trigger for pain. You know, not setting boundaries can be a pain trigger. Certain environmental, like a pandemic, for example, can be a pain trigger. So there's always all of these triggers live in these different bubbles. And it's very important for us to know what our triggers are, because if we don't get ahead of them, we're never going to be able to control them or reduce them. And as someone is sort of in the throes of their chronic pain, what are, you mentioned distraction. What are some other common pain control strategies that someone might use? What I love so much about this orientation to pain is that it's sort of like the answer is in front of you as soon as you understand the problem really well. So if you think back to this CBT, what we're calling the CBT pain cycle, and and like you can ax the CBT from that because whether or not a CBT is moot, the chronic pain cycle is this cycle where the things we think affect our emotions, affect our sensations, affect our behaviors. So the way we treat chronic pain is by breaking down this cycle. So if you notice that you're living with pain and you're having thoughts like, I'm broken, I'll never get better, or, you know, I'll never be able to do X, Y, Z again, we need to go after those catastrophic thoughts to help you feel better. So that's something we want to get a CBT therapist, preferably someone trained in pain. But if you cannot find a pain psychologist, No problem. You go to any therapist you like and trust and hand them the pain management workbook, or you go to any PT or OT you like and trust and you hand them the pain management workbook and you say, please, will you go through this with me? There's other things we can do also in the psych domain. We want to manage stress and anxiety better. Stress and anxiety management is never just a pill. Never, not ever. That is another big lie we have all been sold. So to to manage our stress and our anxiety, we need to take certain measures to do that. So maybe it's limiting social media. Maybe it's limiting how often we watch the news. Maybe it's back to the social domain. Maybe it's limiting the amount of time we spend with our parents or our in-laws. You know, maybe it's you know, there's a million different things. So we also want to increase our social support. We want to find people who are nurturing and supportive. We want to connect with community. We want to move our bodies. We want to go outside. Like 
as part of my treatment plan for every patient who comes to see me, I always start with five minutes of walking outside every day. It's mandatory. Every day, five minutes of walking outside. Some people can't do five minutes and we have to start lower than that. And that's okay too. And you can take as many breaks as you need to to scratch dogs that you meet and take drinks of water and stretch. But moving is critical for pain management always. We also want to get people back to life. We want to get them back to work. We want to get them re-engaged in their beloved hobbies. So there's, there's a lot of things that we want to do. And I think what I'm submitting is it's never just one thing. It's never just looking at, you know, the bone or the muscle or the tendon. It's like, how are you sleeping? If, if you're, if you have really bad insomnia and you're waking up five times a night, Science says sleep also affects pain too. So I want to start with sleep hygiene. I want to, maybe I do CBTI, CBT for insomnia. I mean, there's like so many things that we can do. We need to know our triggers. We need to know our pain recipe before we can adequately and completely treat pain, whether we're using biofeedback or somatic experiencing or movement, going to a PT or CBT for chronic pain, or whether we're using medication management. I am all about an integrative approach. I am not saying, by the way, that medications are not appropriate for pain. There absolutely is a time and place for medication. And by the way, thank God for medication. You know, pain medication after dental surgery is a godsend. So I don't want to send the message that I am not in any way, you know, I am absolutely 100% pro medication in the right dose at the right time for the right length of time. Um, But what research says is that medications over time, there's like, there's no one single medication that's actually a treatment for chronic pain over time. And that includes opioids, by the way, absolutely without a doubt, science says there's not a single medication that is the answer to pain. If you want to integrate medication, fine, but it has to be part of this bigger biopsychosocial treatment plan. Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And as we start to wrap up, Rachel, how can someone sort of begin to find their identity again after they have made chronic pain their identity? Oh my God, you're ending with the hardest question on the (laughs) planet. I know, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. Um, Listen, I say this with great compassion. Chronic pain is very hard. Living with pain day in and out is life-changing, life-altering you know, it does change your identity. And as someone who's lived with chronic pain for a long time, I relate to that. The danger is, again, when we give chronic pain all of our attention, it turns out that that actually will amplify pain volume. And we don't want to let chronic pain take over our life. Like chronic pain will take as much real estate as you give it. You know, if you decide to stay in bed, I mean, I did that for a year. If you decide to stay in bed and drop out of life and drop out of work and not see people, chronic pain will take that space. It will do that. And we have to make sure to not let that happen. So I I try and really encourage people to not let chronic pain become your whole identity. And there's many ways to fight back, you know, by reengaging with communities that you love and you know, that reflect who you are other than being someone with pain. So if you're someone who's into birds or you're someone who's into painting or you're someone who's into, I don't know, making movies, like those are all things that we need to stay engaged in and keep doing even if we have some pain. Or if you're passionate about, you know, something to do with work, we want you to stay engaged with work. We want you to stay engaged with, you know, your communities, your religious communities. And, you know, we want you going outside and moving your body. So there's a lot of ways of combating that, but it is very hard because it's important also to have social support and it's important to be around people who know 
what it means to live a life with pain. So I feel like it's this fine line, this balance between honoring your pain and wanting to be around people who understand while also wanting to maintain your identity as someone in the world beyond someone who just has pain. So um, I think it's a, it's a sort of um, a fine balance to walk, but it's definitely doable. Yeah. I like the stay engaged, but honor your pain route. I think that that makes it feel manageable. Yeah, exactly. Right. And Rachel, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Yeah. So the most important takeaway message for people living with pain is that chronic pain is always treatable. Anyone who tells you that chronic pain is not treatable does not understand pain. Pain is always changing. We all know that. And if pain can change, that means pain can change. If pain can change, that means pain can change. That's a very important message for people living with pain. Just because something hasn't worked doesn't mean it will never work. And the other message I want to convey, because I know most of our listeners are therapists, is that you treat pain. You may not have been trained in it, but you absolutely treat pain and you can treat it better. If you if you feel worried or you feel like you don't have expertise in it, there's a lot of ways that you can polish that knowledge. So the pain management workbook is a guide that I wrote for therapists who want to treat pain. There's also workshops on my website and a ton of resources. So my website is just my last name, zafnis.com. There's more articles, more guided audio, more book recommendations, more links to websites than you've ever seen in your life. It took me like 10 years to put it together um, and it's all free. So I hope that's of use to you. If this is interesting to you, please come find me. We need an army to change pain medicine and we are going to. On Instagram, I'm at the real Zoff, and I put a lot of pain signs information out there. I'm also on Twitter at Dr. Zoffness. Please come find me. It's really important for me to have healthcare providers who believe in this work. And I need more therapists who understand pain and believe in bridging this gap between physical and emotional brain and body. And I cannot do it without you. So um, I hope you'll join me. And um, thank you again for having me on. Thanks so much, Rachel. This has been such a great conversation, such important work, such interesting work. So thank you so much for all of your work and this conversation. If you're struggling with chronic pain, you're not alone. More than 100 million Americans currently live with chronic pain. Yet despite its prevalence, chronic pain is not well understood. Fortunately, research has emerged showing the effectiveness of a treatment model for pain management grounded in biology, psychology, and social functioning. In the Pain Management Workbook, you'll find a comprehensive outline of this effective biopsychosocial approach, as well as scientifically supported interventions rooted in cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, and neuroscience to help you take control of your pain and your life. You'll learn strategies for creating a pain plan for home and work, reducing reliance on medications, and breaking the pain cycle. Also included are tips for improving sleep, nutrition for pain, methods for resuming valued activities, and more. If you're ready to take your life back from pain, this workbook has everything you need to get started. Visit our website at www.newharbinger.com and use coupon code PODCAST25 to receive 25% off your entire order. New Harbinger Publications is an independent, employee-owned publisher of books on psychology, health, spirituality, and personal growth. For 50 years, our evidence-based self-help books and pioneering workbooks have helped readers make positive changes to improve mental health and well-being. Founded by psychologists Matthew McKay and Patrick Fanning, New Harbinger is proud to be an employee-owned company. Our books reflect our core values of integrity, sustainability, compassion, and trust. 
Written by leaders in the field and recommended by therapists worldwide, New Harbinger books are practical, accessible, and provide real tools for real change. Join the New Harbinger Clinicians Club, a free membership club exclusively for mental health professionals. Sign up today and you'll receive a special welcome gift, 35% off all professional books, free client resources, free eBooks throughout the year, access to private sales, a subscription to our quick tips for therapists email program, and more. Visit newharbinger.com slash clinicians dash club for more information. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the show, and we hope you might share it with anyone who might benefit from the content. This podcast is not a substitute for counseling with a licensed provider.